At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. Amen. Morning, guys. How you doing? You doing good? Woo! It's warm. Guys, I went outside and the sun was shining. Yes. Wow, it was amazing. I didn't think Michigan had the sun. So um, I am happy. Yes. It won't last long. Thank you. Come on. We just came out of Hope Week. Seriously? All right, guys, this is a good morning. And, you know, first service, we do whatever we want. So um, I get to embarrass people who I love. And so I actually have two individuals that came from my last church in the great land of Louisville. Yes, two people took the track up and I love to embarrass them because I just believe it's a very spiritual thing. And um, so Nathan and Jessica Combs, can you wave to the church? Look how uncomfortable they are. Yes. If you really want to know me, talk to them, okay? If you want me to stay here, don't talk to them, all right? That's the key. All right, so I'm going to share something pretty embarrassing, and I think that's a great way to start a message. So here's the deal. Have you ever had a moment when you realized the truth about yourself that other people noticed, but you didn't? Have you guys ever had that? Like I was talking to one of my buddies and he said, um, I remember when I realized how bald I was. <laughs> I realized it was a picture. I was bending over like this and someone got a picture and, and I realized, I said, is that what everyone sees? <laughs> and he said, at that moment, I realized it's time to look like Stone Cold Steve Austin. All right. I knew it was time to shave my head. Okay? Think about that. There's moments you're like, this is, this is true. And so I remember vividly when I remembered or when I realized how out of shape I was. I remember this because, you know, I played college soccer. I mean, that's all you do is run. Occasionally you kick a ball, but really it's just, hey, let me run around a field for a little bit. And so I'm running around, I'm kicking, and we would play 90 minutes of soccer. I remember when we had a tournament, we played 90 minutes, went into double overtime. We played 90 minutes, went into double overtime. We played a championship game, went into double overtime. All in one tournament, back-to-back-to-back days, right? And I remember being tired, but I still did it, okay? Running, running, running. So after I graduated they have this game called the alumni game. And the alumni game essentially is when the current team plays some of the alumni from the past. And so our team was really good. So the first year we're like, we're going to crush the current team. We did. We crushed them. We crushed them the second year. And I remember the third year. (laughs) I remember feeling so good about myself. Yeah, I'm not working out as much. Yeah, I've gained a, um, uh, not in a freshman, like a middle age 50, you know, and, and I remember 
getting on that field, and they weren't better than us, they were just faster than us, and I remember turning and watching them score, and I didn't even move, I just turned and looked forward. I was like, I'm not even finishing that, I can't even, my facial expressions went out, so I was like, man, I was so tired, but that was fun, until I saw a clip of me playing. And then I, when I witnessed it, this was a little more like that, and that was more like that. And, um, and I realized, I thought I was running so fast, but I was really just like this, you know? And um, it, was, it was very uncomfortable to witness. There's a spiritual meaning to all this, I promise, okay? And so when I, when I realized how out of shape I was, I decided it was time to retire. <laughs> I decided, you know what, maybe I'll play a little pickup here or there on smaller fields, but I, I'm not going to be in that alumni game anymore. It was, it was pretty rough. I should stick to being a dad and a pastor and, and put the cleats up. I saved the cleats, but they don't get worn too often. And, um, and so I want us to think this morning, we're starting a brand new series, series I'm very excited about, series I'm very passionate about. And, and one thing about this series that, that immediately hits me is is when we have a realization of what we've received with Christ, it causes us to change. Like once we truly witness the the splendor, the majesty, the glory of God, if it really hit us, we're going to change. Or we're going to fight tooth and nail to change. Like some of us were like, man, I, Jesus has given this to me. I, I know that, that I want to change my life. I know I want to share this with others. And so when we have that, that epiphany moment, when we have that like, whoa, if we want to see a genuine faith, we're going to see change in the person's life. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I can't help but change because of what Christ ha- has done for me. And, and I think that we have moments where we're like on fire for God. We hear phrases like, I was on the mountaintop. And because I was on the mountaintop, I was being bold. I was in men's ministry. I was in precepts. I was praying every day. I was reading my Bible. I was, I was spending time listening to worship music and just meditating. And we have those seasons, and you could probably hone in on a season where you know what I'm talking about. Like I was just, I was just in a different realm. I was at a different place because what God had done in my life. And then I always think about that because I have those same experiences. What, what changed? Some say, oh, that was just an emotional moment. You know, we were just running on emotionalism. It wasn't as much about what God had done. I was just excited and energized. And, and we, can, we can claim certain things, but regardless there is a, a movement of the Holy Spirit in our life where it should keep us changed. It, it should keep reciprocating so we are moved. And, and unfortunately, we get easily distracted. Unfortunately, in, in our lives, we forget what we've experienced. We forget those moments when we're on the mountaintop. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that that the brilliance, (laughs) the beauty of God today 
will, will compel us to share of who he is. And, and I believe throughout scripture, God is, is constantly sending people to be his messengers, to be his representatives. I mean, you think about from the beginning, there's Adam and Eve, and, and he commissions them to what? Be fruitful and multiply. Go be baby factory, right? Like go pump out babies, be fruitful and multiply. So he commissions them. Then you have uh, the great commission or the words of John in Revelation where he says to the church, hey, continue going, making disciples, sending people into the world to create disciples. And so over the next three weeks, we're gonna be digging into Isaiah chapter six and we're gonna see this prophet by the name of Isaiah Go on mission with God's message. And we're going to see how he responds. We're going to see what he sees. And, and I'm excited about this because we get to peek in to the throne room of God. Like, have you guys ever, like, looked into a little crack in the wall? Or, or, or maybe someone's knocking on your door and you, you look in the little hole to see if, if someone's there? You know, and you just get a glimpse, Right? You just get a glimpse, a small glimpse. You don't get the whole picture. You just get a small part of the picture. We get to see and peek into the throne room of God and see what Isaiah saw in that moment and see why after Isaiah chapter six, we're gonna be going through the first four verses, but we're gonna see why it only took eight verses for for Isaiah to say, here I am, God, send me. He got this glimpse, he got to see the majesty of God, and it just took eight verses for him to say, hey, hey, I'll go. What, what do you want me to do? And he was so moved by that experience, he couldn't help but want to go. So the very first thing we see is the glory of of God. We see the glory of God. That's in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're going to be digging in to the first uh, four verses today and continuing digging in. And, and this is what it says in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another one and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So what's interesting here is this opening passage. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. That's something we can skim over very quick. Uh, if you remember the reign of King Uzziah, he had a long and a prosperous reign. 
I mean, he had a good season leading the nation of Israel, and he followed God for, for decades of his life. He had a really um, fruitful season because he was, he was connected with God. But what we see is that when he was strong, when he was reigning at the peak of his career, he grew very, very proud. And he started to look around and say, hey, this is, there's a lot of me in here. He started to forget what God had done in his, in his reign. And eventually this led to his downfall. It led to his destruction. And so he had the last part of his life. He was actually unfaithful to God. And unfortunately, the nation, uh, they followed his leadership. They didn't try to overthrow him. They didn't try to, to change him. They didn't try to confront him. They actually followed in his path. And then it says that he died. And so I, I wonder about that. When I'm digging into commentaries and studying this, um, there's a lot of uh, theologians, and even myself, not a theologian, but someone who hungers for the word, who studies the word, I tend to lean this way, that the reason why they said in the year that King Uzziah died is because they wanted to continue to remind the reader that even though this man who was one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, he still died. He, he went to the grave. And God was still on his throne. God was still alive. And this reminds the reader that even though world powers will come and go, even though there's going to be this, these, these world kingdoms, a hundred years from now, that leader's going to be dead. And maybe that kingdom will still be there. Or maybe it'll be there, but just not as prominent. That even think of the, the world powers today. Think about the most powerful people on the planet right now. A hundred years from now, they're going to be dead, and God is still going to be on his throne. You think about a hundred years ago, and you think about the most powerful people a hundred years ago. I mean, we're talking uh, World War I. We're thinking about, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm. We're thinking about these world leaders and they're dead. But God is still on his throne. And so the reality is that whether it's King Uzziah or King Jehoshaphat, whoever it may be, they're dead. And God still is here. He's still here right now in the very present. The God of Uzziah is still the same God that we serve. And sometimes we, we detach from the Old Testament, from David, from Noah, from Samson. Oh man, that was just another world ago. That's the same God we serve right now. And so in this case, it was the year that King Uzziah died. It's kind of like a little flex right there. Hey, he dead. I'm alive. I'm still here. And in that moment, it says the Lord, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, I, wanna, I wish I had more time for this part. Um, but it says that he saw the Lord, right? 
Well, if you remember in John 1.18, it says that, that no one has ever seen God, right? No one has ever seen God. So, so what do we see here? Has he, has he actually seen God? If it says that no one has ever seen God, he's saying he saw God. Well, what we see in the word is the Lord sometimes clothes himself with visibility for the good of his people. He gives them an image sometimes symbolic, sometimes literal. And so he allowed Isaiah to have some visibility of who he was with purpose. So he's allowing him to see this. And in this case, he allowed him to see a king on a throne with a robe and people attending around. And he's in a temple and he's, and he's highly exalted. All this is speaking of the supremacy of God in all things. Like he is on a throne above all thrones and a king who was on a throne is dead and God is still on his throne. He's still higher, he's still above. And so he's seeing this, here's Isaiah who's trapped in kingdoms of men and now he sees God lifted up. You guys starting to see why he was so shook. He saw his God in a temple. I don't think this is just a symbol that he was in this, this temple uh, above earth, right? And above heavens. It's where the Lord is. It's the indwelling of God. And it shows the sovereign Lord and how he's lifted up above all. And then, <laughs> I'm getting jazzed up about this. And then it said... He was sitting at his throne. Now, this is important. D does anyone here get stressed out? <laughs> yeah, not, not you, right? Not you. You guys, I I'm sure no one in here ever gets stressed out. Some people probably to had to host Easter lunch or dinner. You're stressing out. Some of you, you're stressing out because you know, a doctor's coming up or you got, I had some car issues. You know, you, we get stressed out, right? We all get wigged out at something. The Lord was sitting. He wasn't stressed out. You know, usually when people are stressed, they're a little twitchy. You know, their eyes start to go a certain way. Maybe they're pacing, you know. The Lord is sitting on his throne. This shows that our God is not anxious. He's not like, oh man, my earth is falling apart. You know, what am I going to do? King Uzziah, he was cool, and now he's not cool, you know, like, then I got this Assyrian army, and, and oh man, those Egyptians are always a thorn in our flesh, and the, oh, the Philistines, don't get me started. He's not worried. He's in control. He's not standing. He's sitting. So he saw the Lord sitting on his throne in complete control. And I want you to know this. God is the same in that vision as he is now. In our world, 
where, where there's battles uh, across oceans with, with Russians and Ukrainians and regions of Crimea and, and do the Chinese want to help and where's the United States and, and NATO and then what about the issues at home? What's going on here? Are we going to do something about here? God is in control. Do you believe that? I don't know about you guys, but, but when I check the news, sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, sometimes I get a little nervous. And then I need to be reminded, our God's not stressed. He sits on his throne. He's not overwhelmed. He, he's not out of energy. He's not burnt out because the earth is coming undone. Rather, he's the king who is meticulously sovereign and earthly powers, they come and go, but the Lord remains. And I want to ask, is this the way we see God? I mean, that's a gut check. I'm not saying we don't act and we don't do things, but, but when it comes down to it, how we see God determines how we live. And if I go person to person, someone's going to have a little different understanding. And, and the point is, the more we get into this, the more we have the actual understanding. Because this isn't the clay, and we mold it as we want. We're the clay, and, and this is shaping us. He is shaping us. And we need to know that in this throne, this throne room, that God is in complete control. And it's a busy place. Like you think about this throne room, it, it says in that room, I mean, I think about busy place, I think about Hall Road, right? Like it is, it is busy, right? There's, there's just a lot going on. And in this throne room, it says that there are seraphim above him shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, I don't know if you've heard that term seraphim before. That literally means burning ones. And so when you think about seraphim and burning ones, fire is the chief symbol of the holiness of God. And so in this, when it says holy, 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 this isn't just a, a repetition, it is an emphasis. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Each word is, each time it's used is boosting the force of the previous word exponentially. There's no other threefold ad adjective or adjective, sorry, <laughs> that appears in the Old Testament. There's no other threefold. So when it says holy, 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 this is a very unique linguistic statement. So when it says this, it, it, it's meaning that God is God and God is God alone. He's not just bigger and better. He's in a different category. He is holy. 
Some commentators would even say that it said holy three times to speak and refer to the Trinity of God. And all this is to communicate how incomparable God is. His, his, his holiness is, his, is utterly unique and divine compared to anything else. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He does his best to express the meaning here by saying this. We must not think of God as highest in ascending order of, of beings, starting with a single cell, going up from a fish to a bird to an animal to an angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an, the archangel or high above as the archangel is to a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. So that's really wordy, so let me, let me rephrase it. It's like the gap from, from my son Milo to Michael Jordan. You know, if we just talk basketball skill, right? Like, like Milo, he, he's my son, he's six, he, he loves shooting hoops on the little hoops, and, um, but he, he can't even make it up to a 10-foot hoop yet, and it's like, okay, let's compare him to Michael Jordan, right? That gap is massive. Like, that's a Grand Canyon gap of skill right now until he becomes the next Michael Jordan and pays for me to have a new house and new boat, but that gap is massive, and what, what he's trying to say here is even though that gap is massive, it's finite. It, it's like, it's this, and it's that alone. Well, the gap between Michael Jordan and God is infinite. It, it's never ending. There's no comparison. You know, it's like a, like a bird going up against Michael Jordan. Even though that's a, a, you can't even compare it, it still doesn't compare to the infinite nature of God. There's no comparison. And so here, when it says uh, in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, it, it's showing that the holiness of God it is some way attached to the external. We see his glory. We, we see his holiness. We see it all by the world. The glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. It's the display of his holiness. So we can brag on God because not just who he is, but, but what we see. I love this phrase, God is glorious. What that means is God's holiness has gone public. That, that's what it means. When, when we say he's glorious, just look around. And, and it shows. He doesn't even need to say anything. It's, it's saying what it needs to say for itself. Leviticus 10.3, I will show myself holy among those who are near me, and before all people I will be glorified. When God shows himself to be holy, what we see is glory. The holiness of God is his concealed glory, and the glory of God is his revealed holiness. This is deep stuff, right? 
It's really deep, and maybe we've never thought about it before. In, in verse 4, it says, at the sound of their voices, the entire structure, it shook. Just at the declaration of God being holy, it shook the foundations of where they were. I love mountains. Who here loves mountains? Anyone? I've been to uh, Arizona recently and was able to hike some mountains. I was able to go um, to Montana and hike and, and down in Tennessee and Colorado. I've hiked some mountains and I've loved it every time. And one thing that I love about mountains is not just the trek up, but when you get to the top, you get to see things in perspective. It's like you got your car and you're like, oh man, that looks like a tall mountain. Do I got to do it? And you walk up that mountain and when you get to the top, everything just seems small. And you look and you're like, man, my car that I'm making payments on and I probably shouldn't have got it and I probably should have done this. And you look down and it's just a little speck. Your car that maybe you try to shine and keep all nice or maybe that car where you're like, man, I've been saving up for years for or, or maybe it's, you know, your old beat-up car that's missing a rim like mine. And uh, regardless, it just puts things into perspective. And I think with mountains, one reason I love them is also because I get to see the majesty of God. I get to see his earth in a better perspective. You know, because I'm, I'm standing here and I'm looking at some beautiful people this morning, right? But if I go up 100 feet at the exact same point, I'm going to see with different perspective. I might be on the same place or in the same place, but up, I'm going to see things differently. I might see a traffic jam on 94. I might see Lake St. Clair you know, I might look and see neighboring towns like New Baltimore, or New Haven, or Richmond. I might be able to see the hustle and the, and, the, and the quickness of Macomb. I'll be able to look down and see the church. And so perspective is a powerful thing. It gives us new vision on things. And, and in those moments when I'm reminded that, that God is God and I'm just me, it, it helps me believe him more. It helps me believe and be reminded that because of God, it, it compels me to live in a way that glorifies him. When I see God for who he really is, it compels me to live for him. It compels us to live in a way that honors him. Again, so going back to that question, how do you see God? Do you see a big, holy, ruling, powerful God in control of everything or a judgmental God or an angry God or powerful God? Or, because the reality is how we see God will, will determine how we respond to him. How we see God will impact how we live. If we see God as, man, he is so irrelevant, he's so out of the mix, the world is out of control, he's not passionate or caring about the world, we might not believe when we pray for God to move the world. 
Or, man, God's not going to heal me. Like, I'm, I'm a nobody. and He's got other things to worry about. We're not going to pray for the power of healing. You know, if we see God as weak and small, we're going to have weak and small prayers. We're going to have weak and small relationship with God. We won't land under the wonder of God. So let's get practical. Now that we've seen the glory of God, that whole point is just to see God for God. Now that we've seen him, now we need to show the world the glory of God. Now we want to show, because once we see, now we want to show. Once we've, once we've witnessed it, we want other people to know. And so in Isaiah, we learn that while God is up there in heaven, exalted high above all things, that he had a plan from the beginning. You know, he created mankind, and, and did he create mankind because he was lonely? Think about, oh, I'm just lonely up here. Like, I need, I need companionship. No, God, God has been in perfect communion and companionship within the Trinity. So why did he create us? Not to make himself complete, but to enjoy the spreading of his goodness and his glory. Now, the whole earth is full of his glory, as the seraphim said. He wants us to experience in that goodness with him. You know, again, the world keeps trying to fill the earth with their own glory, you know, recognizing athletic achievements or, or movie achievements or, or financial achievements. And I always think, man, where's that getting you? Where have, where have you arrived to with achievements, with man and, and woman and worldly, where, where's it got you? And so in this, it is showing us that God is the only one who's worthy to be glorified. And, and I love it. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus gives us a great example of this. He says that we here on earth, in, in Matthew 5, 14, we are to be the light of the world. We are to be the light of the world. It says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus calls us to live as a light to the world doing good works so that people get a picture of God and give him glory in heaven. We are <laughs> to live so that people see God and therefore glorify God. We want people to see God through us. We want people to experience God through us. Say the old cliche statement, we might be the only Bible anyone reads. We might be the only vein to Christ that they ever witness. We get to show the world the true light by ourselves being a light and pointing to him. You know, this week I actually experienced this. I was uh, having lunch with the great 
Pastor David Varga, if you know him. And, um, and we got to have this really fancy place called Hamlin Pub. And it was really good. In Richmond, on my way back, I got a flat tire. So here I am, I'm, my car is in the shop, and so I borrowed my brother-in-law's car, and my brother-in-law's car got a flat tire, and now it's in the shop. So here I am, I'm like, really? Really? And so I have a complete flat tire, I look to my right, and there's an auto shop. So I literally run out of uh, um, air in my front right tire, and I'm in front of an auto shop. So then I go up, I pull it up, and here comes this guy, and he walks out to me. He was smiling. He was kind. I said, hey, my, my car, do you have a tire? Do you have? And he said, hey, let me help you. He came out. He stopped what he was doing. He came out of his, uh, of his garage, and he said, hey, you, you need to get a, a jack. You need to jack it up. And so I went to my back uh, of my trunk, and I got the, the tire out. I got the jack. He said, no, here, use mine. So then he brought out his jack, and then, and then he helped me jack it up, and then I was trying to, to turn those lug nuts. He said, no, 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 here, let me go get my power drill, right? So he went and got it, and, 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 I, and I unscrewed the, the lug nuts, and then he helped me put it on, and then, and then I got the, that donut on, that beautiful donut, and then he came out, and I kid you not, one of the most friendly guys, and the last thing he handed me, and I know this might sound like a stretch, but it was a cross wrench. <laughs> the whole time I was thinking, this guy is like an answer from God. <laughs> I'm like, you, can I get on a rant? Do I, am I allowed to? Yeah. Oh, go for it. We had three people. Okay. <laughs> um, customer service in this world is not the best. <laughs> and when you find good customer service, people stick with them because it's rare. This guy didn't know me. I didn't pay him a dime. And he took care of me. I had bad tools. He gave me his tools. I know where to go. He, he, he helped jack up my car so I can get a tire to get to a shop. And then he said, hey, take this cross wrench. And I kid you not, in that moment, I said, this guy is amazing. And then he handed me this cross wrench, and I was like, whoa. And then I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm a pastor down the road. I'm new. His eyes lit up. And I could tell this guy knew Jesus because he was loving me. Not because I could offer him money, but loving me as his neighbor. He was a light to me. And yes, of course, I asked him, hey, you should come down to the church and maybe he's going to be here today. I don't know. But in that moment, he was a light to me. He showed me just something that was different. He treated me in a way where you don't get treated that often because God's glory compels us to go. It inspires us to go. In that moment, he helped me see what it looked like to love my neighbor. And so we have those opportunities as well to love and to be light and to do something that, yes, is uncomfortable and, yes, sacrificial and, yes, we might get hurt or, yes, they might take advantage of us. Yes, there might be some pain, but we get to love like Jesus loved us. And that's what we get to receive. So again, the glory of God, it should compel us to go. And hopefully as we continue this series, as we get to Isaiah 6 verse 8, when God says, send me, I'll go, hopefully we will know what he is sending us to. 
Maybe it be, might be right in front of us and we've never seen it, but we will know what he wants us to do. The question is, will we go? Will we see it and will we act? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.